Michael. Hey, Diane, how are you? Well, uh, once again, we are sheltered in place here in California, which means basically staying in our homes as much as humanly possible, only engaging people um, with fully masked faces and for essential, for essential services. How about you? Well, cases uh, keep on rising here, and we're just waiting to see what'll happen. We've gotten some restrictions, but not nearly the lockdown you all have in California. So I would just say there's a lot of uncertainty, Diane. Well, that seems to be the theme for the year, um, and it's it's honestly the reality of this, you know, pandemic that we're living through and the and the surge um, that we're experiencing with the virus, and you know the the resulting actions that are being taken by states and local governments put education front and center once again, uh, which is why we created this podcast to begin with. And so, um, you know, in hopes that we can really track the intersection of the pandemic and schools. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I can't remember in, in my time in this field, education consistently being such a front page story. But what's interesting has been a, I, what I want to talk about to you uh, today is what's becoming more and more of a hot topic. But honestly, it's been a little shielded from the front pages uh, uh, until relatively recently recently. And that's the role of teachers unions in all of this. And, and obviously, we in a past episode, we talked about how you have been working through the reopening question. That is, do we actually reopen physical schools and welcome our students into them? And how do we do them? Uh, but in many schools across the country, as you know, there's another big voice in those decisions. And it's teachers unions. And I really want to hear your thoughts about their role in all this. Michael, uh, this is a really critical conversation and we haven't had it yet here on on uh, class disrupted um, I'm game um, and I suggest that we actually spend the whole episode on it because um, I really want us to push past the the sound bites and the over simplistic polarization and actually dig in because there's a lot of nuance here and and I don't want to get into villains and and you know so let let's actually spend some time on it and do it right. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I think uh, if, if you go back to our spring podcast and then all the episodes, unions is not a word that we've used throughout all of this. Uh, and that's for a reason, I think. You know, you and I both have a belief that the challenges and opportunities facing our school system honestly go much deeper than the unions. Uh, but it's a uh, popular hot take on either side of the political aisle, right, about what's either good or bad about schools. And so, uh, you know, and, and that, but they are a reality of the system. And in many states and large districts right now, right, teachers unions have played a powerful role in negotiating school closures and reopenings. And I think far more than the public at large realizes. So there were two articles in Education Week that got my attention about this in the last week. And, and uh, it talked about how teachers unions have tended to be more conservative in their stance toward reopening buildings. And I might just put my bias out there. I think they have good reason to in many cases. You know, they've worried about safety for their members in schools with suboptimal ventilation systems, windows that don't open in some cases and the like. And uh, according to the article in Education Week, several statewide teachers unions, including in Illinois, Maryland, and Wisconsin, have put pressure on their governors, though, to mm -hmm. shut down schools all across the state, regardless of what the safety measures are in place, or set clear benchmarks that dictate when districts will have to close their doors. Now, 
there's been some interesting academic research that's also come out in the last few weeks, which is which is showing that schools with strong unions are less likely to be in person. Mm-hmm. But that pressure is even extended into limiting what private and charter schools that may be non-unionized have been able to do in some cases. And mm-hmm. this is clashed directly, right, Diane? with many who are pointing out that schools have been relatively safer than other places of work. They aren't the big cause of spread in communities, or as, at least as we can see in the data right now. And children don't seem to get as ill. And, and the consequences, though, of them not having childcare and in-person teaching can be devastating, frankly. And relative to bars and gyms, for example, there are a lot of people saying, hey, states ought to prioritize reopening schools first and foremost. I mean, Dr. Fauci, for example, he's been strong in saying communities should prioritize reopening schools. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, the question has been whose interest, right, gets prioritized in making these decisions. But I'd say there's one other factor worth throwing in there as we dig in, which is there is some reason to be cynical. Right, And I'll just give you three data points, which is the Chicago Teachers Union, for example, uh, when they released a list of conditions for reopening, it included the enactment of Medicare for all. Not quite sure what that has to do with schooling, but they threw it in there. The Mm -hmm. second one was uh, in Fairfax County. The Federation of Teachers there called for keeping schools shuttered until at least the summer of 2021. Not a lot of nuance in that one. And in Massachusetts, the union demanded the permanent elimination of all MCAS exams, a blanket demand to restore all positions that had been cut in the spring. You get the idea. Basically, big demands that, you know, obviously we've touched on some of these in this podcast, but just big blanket demands that almost seem like they're overextending what they're asking for. So against that background, What's your take? What's going on here in your mind? Yeah. Well, um, Michael, I I think that before we even fully jump in here, I kind of wanted to set the table a little bit because in in the articles you shared and all the pieces that I've been reading, there's a couple key points that I don't think anyone's talking about, but really um, have a are, are you know the the underpinning of a lot of what's happening here. And, and it's important people understand these pieces because the, it contributes to what the, the conversations that's happening in the decision. So the first place I would start is with race and class. And so we, we have to enter to this conversation by acknowledging some really foundational realities that don't get talked about much in the media and, and cut to the heart of some of these tensions and conflicts. Um, as we've said many times on this podcast, this is not just a health crisis we are in. It is also a critical racial and economic reckoning that we are experiencing as a country. And, and most people don't realize there are significant demographic and economic differences between union members and the students and families that they serve. So let's lay out some stats on that. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, you know these, uh, Michael, but most people don't. So the the you know teachers in the Mer- in America 79% of them are white women 79% of teachers in America are white women they make up the vast majority of union membership teacher union membership not true for students and families in the U.S., especially in cities. The students and families in the U.S. are now majority people of color. These are the people who are being served by these teachers. So there's a real race difference there. There's also an economic difference. You know, we we certainly, you and I both believe teachers deserve to be paid more. Most people believe that. There are really important arguments to be made there. And 
Even with what teachers are currently paid in most places, they have a steady income with consistent benefits that include healthcare, medical, etc. The majority of our K-12 students in America come from families that are literally the majority, Michael, living at or below the poverty line now. Um, there's a huge economic difference between a lot of the students that are being served by the teachers and the actual teachers themselves. And I can just tell you from my own personal experience, having been, as you know, a student who grew up in a family that was living well below the poverty line and having the experience of being a teacher, those are two fundamentally different existences. And what it means to be a child in a family living at or below the poverty line is that your existence is incredibly fragile. And any little um, issue can throw you into crisis. And let's be clear, we have so many issues right now that, that families are being thrown into crisis left and right. Yep. And, and you know, teachers in most places continue to collect their full compensation, full salary, full benefits with no change or threat to those. And, and that's a really important... That's an important backdrop, Diane. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, I'm glad you brought that perspective in uh, for starters. But I know that there's more on your mind against that backdrop as well. Yeah, I think the second one is, and we've talked about this before, and it, it boils down to childcare. Look, <laughs> the reality is that um, since the, the start of the pandemic, um, what has surfaced is a, is a conversation we never really had before as a country, but like, Teachers are childcare providers. And while it seems obvious that that's what schools do, the rub here is teachers do not see themselves as childcare providers, Michael. Like they, if you said to a teacher, oh, by the way, you're a babysitter. I mean, they would cringe at that. I cringe sure. at that, you know? Totally. Uh, you know, their teachers view their job as teaching. If a byproduct of that is watching over people's children and providing, you know, childcare, great. But that, but there's this real sense of like that is not my job. I'm not a babysitter, and so you know, this usually goes without much discussion or attention. But suddenly, the pandemic comes along, and the unions are effectively advocating for their their members to get their full pay, full benefits, while not providing childcare. And for families, you know, parents and families, as you might imagine, this is a really tough position to swallow. Uh, given that for so many of them, if they don't work, they don't get paid. And so many of them have lost their work and would like do anything to get it back, even risk their own safety. But now, on top of all that, they have to figure out what to do to care for their children. And so from, you know, a parent and family perspective, it seems it's just straight up seems unfair. It just doesn't seem fair. And, and but yet teachers, they feel like they are similar to so many other workers that if it isn't safe to do the work, then they can't do the work. Um, and so there, there, once again, is this really fundamental difference in perspective and experience that I think is underlying a lot of the tension and the controversy we're seeing here. Yeah, it's interesting. It reminds me of two quick things, which is one, it's sort of the old adage that uh, what you think you're providing your people isn't actually what they are buying, if you will, right? It's not what they want out of the experience. And there's no question about it. Childcare is a critical 
piece of this. The second thing that occurs to me is that there's a real asymmetry at play that you're talking about, right? You have whole organizations advocating for unions. You don't have those same organizations necessarily advocating for students. Right. And that might seem like a small nuance in normal times. It's a rather large one against the backdrop that you just painted, Diane. It, it is, because you basically have all of these individual families going up against really well-organized policy and advocacy machines. I mean, that's yeah, what with unions a lot of, are. And, yeah. and a lot of resources behind them, right? And, totally. And, and, and an interesting set of conflicts, right, also mm-hmm. as public sector unions, obviously. So th- this, right. is a, this is not an insignificant point that you're making. Right. Um, I think the next thing that then emerges here, Michael, is a really interesting question about are teachers essential workers? I mean, before the pandemic, I, don't, I didn't ever think of that concept, really. I don't know how much time you spent thinking about essential no, workers. No, I mean, I think, it's a, I, I, think, I think it's a rather novel concept. I mean, it's, it's in some ways problematic because it's very hard to draw the line on it is my impression, right? I mean, it gets it's a very slippery slope in some regards. And I'm not always sure how useful it like it is at some point, because so many parts of our world are are, are essential. But right, right. Well, and you know, I think there'd been a few other incidents that maybe helped the public think about healthcare workers, police, fire mm-hmm. people, as essential sure, workers, first I mean, responders. Yeah, first responders have become a part of our lexicon in the US. And so, you know, I don't, I think most people were comfortable with the idea of like, oh yeah, these people risk their lives to carry out their duty. It's part of their job. And so that has kind of carried into the pandemic and that people are like, okay, well, it seems, well, yeah, they're risking their lives. Where it starts to fall apart though, is suddenly people who I don't think anyone thought that about, delivery people, postal people, food services people, warehouse, manufacturing, they're suddenly essential workers because what everyone figured out is without them, literally no one in the country can survive. They, they won't get food, they won't get basic essential things. And so these aren't professions, Michael, that people are expecting to risk their safety regularly and also, they tend to be lower paying with fewer benefits and yep. less job security. And so this really starts to open this question for teachers of like, hey, wait a minute. If all these other people got turned into essential workers, why are teachers not essential workers? And why do they get a different sort of, yeah, like, it again, it doesn't seem fair, does it? Yeah, no, I think it's the right question or it pegs on these things that, I, I I think part of what I struggle with is 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 it's just so hard to draw these arbitrary lines down the middle and say it's all this thing or all that thing. It's so community dependent. It's so context dependent, and it gets into the next topic that's really forefront in my mind. Where I said I'm I am sympathetic to a lot of the uh, reasons that unions have pushed back on opening, and and I'm glad that they have in some cases, which is safety, right? right. And are these buildings truly safe? Are they getting the ventilation that they need? and so forth. And initially, right, Diane, when this all struck, uh, you know, we didn't really know anything about this virus. We thought it was all, you know, transmitted by hand, like playgrounds were getting shut down. So you didn't touch surfaces. And so we said, hey, everyone could sort of agree that it made sense to close schools. But but the real debate, I think, has shifted in some measure now. And we've learned a lot more about how to keep people safe. And so I think there is a natural question, Diane, which is, can't schools do the same as we've sort of 
started to unpack the safety question more and more. I mean, there you're exactly right, Michael, and there is a lot here, but, let, but let's just start with some basic observations from my own experience, and I'm sure yours and almost everyone's, which is like, I, I, you all know I'm an educator, and from day one, I've been immersed in thinking about how we can possibly operate our school buildings during the pandemic. And with that in mind, I pay very close attention to what everyone else is doing and, and in how they're opening and reopening their businesses. And, and there are some meaningful differences, Michael. Like when I go to the doctor, the dentist, those people who are seeing patients first, like the volume of the people they see is incredibly low compared to a school. They, they only see- It's a really interesting point. You know, they see people for very short periods of time. They don't see them very often. They can control when and how people enter. They give several minutes to every single person to screen them before they can even come in. You know, this is fundamentally different from what a school looks like where people are in contact with each other for extended periods of time, day in and day out. The arrival and departure happens in batches and the ratio of quote the workers to the patient slash customer is totally different. You know, I have gone to the dentist where there's four people working there and me as a patient. Um, yep. You know, so no, that's a really good point. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. Uh, so, so that seems very different. And I, as an educator, have not learned a ton from their protocols because I'm like, it's, this just is not comparable to school, right? So then I'm like, all right, well, grocery stores or any kind of store, maybe there's something there. But again, like they have more volume than, than these offices, but it's still super controlled. They can make people stand in a line outside <laughs> and wait to come in. You know, people aren't trying to socialize and engage with each other in the building. They're actually trying to avoid each other. You know, so again, I'm, I'm just not finding a lot of like, correlation between all these other places that people keep pointing to and say, well, they figured out how to do it. Why can't you figure out how to do it? School. Um, because the bottom line is schools are just dealing with a lot more complexity in what the being there looks like. Um, and so I just think that that is a place where um, I have a lot of empathy for you know, what's going on and the union saying, whoa, time out. This is not like everything else. And like, how does this actually look and what is it going to be like? I totally agree with that. I think it's, uh, it, 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 it highlights the complexity of what we're asking. I would also go so far as to say that it highlights the substandard experience we're often asking schools to reopen into Diane, yes. which is to say that when they come back with masks distanced, what's already not a terribly social experience has not been nearly engaging enough in both of our opinions, you know, right. historically in most schools is arguably even less so. And I'm, I'm personally, and this is anecdotal, mm -hmm. uh, but I, and, but I've also seen it in a lot of surveys that sometimes the least satisfied in terms of families have been those that have been in these hybrid experiences where it's a couple days in person, a couple days remote, and it's sort of the worst of both worlds in the substandard experience on top of which, you know, you, you talked about the asymmetry of these two populations. What the other piece that's worth saying is that the parents who've been the, the least in favor of their kids going back to school, as we've talked about in this podcast is uh, predominantly those in low income minority families, yes. like they, they don't trust, I think, a lot of these protocols 
to be done well. Right. Uh, because their communities have been most burned yes. during this pandemic because they're the frontline workers, right? Totally. They're the ones that are out in the community getting COVID first, frankly. I, I think that is something that doesn't get talked about nearly enough that the, when you see all these parents who are advocating for schools to open and whatnot, again, they tend to be the more white affluent leading families um, and not uh, the lower income uh, families of color. I, I also think that this just also highlights what you're talking about. The experience part highlights, once again, this disconnect between teachers who believe their job is to teach and not to provide childcare. And so when they start looking at these reopening plans, they're like, wait a minute, what am I doing here? I'm like checking kids in and taking temperatures and policing their behavior. And and then just babysitting them? What? Where? I don't even teach in this scenario. Why are we in this building? And so you know, and I have some empathy for that perspective. Yeah, I think I, I mean, reasonably so, right? And so I, I, I guess the question from my perspective is, you know, where, where do you take it from there? That's constructive, right? So, uh, and 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 so I'm curious where your head goes when I frame the question that way. Yeah, well, one one thing that has been really valuable to me is talking to school leaders f across the country who I, uh, you know, really uh, trust and admire who have opened their buildings. And one of the key things they've told me, Michael, is that, you know, there's a lot of fear involved in going back into the building and there's a lot of unknown. And what they've experienced is once people get in and they get into a rhythm and they get into a routine, some of that fear dissipates. Some of the unknown goes away. People actually start to be able to do it then. And then they really do some of that joy and gratefulness of being back in person comes shining through. So I do, I do, I'm hearing from people and granted, we have not gone back in the buildings yet, but some positive momentum of once you actually get in there with a, with a good plan. Um, and so I think that's hopeful. The, the other thing I just think we got to throw in here really quickly is I think the public and the media and the politicians are not helping the conversation when everything that comes out of their mouth is about how schools are totally safe for kids. And they actually never even acknowledge that it's not true for adults. And I just think the absence of their acknowledgement of the teachers and the adults actually provokes teachers in the union to feel like they have to stand up for themselves, you know? Um, yeah, that's a really, it's a really good point, Diane. So Michael, I think where this whole conversation is leading us is back to what we've been talking about from the beginning, which is there are, there are truly some systematic flaws in our system and the designs of our schools that are contributing to all of this. And, you know, that is at the heart of this, this conversation around teachers and unions. Yeah, it's an, it's an important point, Diane, because I think, you know, some of what we've just said could be construed as sort of the union bashing, right? And I, I to both of us, that's not that's not exactly what we're saying here, right? That there's a deeper set of structural flaws in the system itself. And you've got to start there in some ways. So I, I think it's worth laying out a couple of those elements. And then we can dig back into, okay, so what would you do given the backdrop in the current moment? I agree. Uh, you know, so let's take ourselves back to March where it became suddenly and painfully obvious that we had really poorly designed schools. And let's just start with the lack of technological infrastructure. You know, uh, what we all discovered was unless a child was in the building, they, they aren't connected or reachable or teachable, which is, is crazy in this day and age. 
there there is a lack of common systems for communication and connections i mean so many how many schools literally lost their families and their kids they couldn't connect with them there, there's a lack of common systems for learning and as a result this is what happened to teachers in the spring most teachers in this country were set completely on their own to do the work of an entire school system uh, Michael, they had to figure out online programs, platforms, how to connect, how to engage, how to teach in a completely different world overnight. So unfair to the teacher, really, truly unfair. And I want to come back to that point in a little bit, Diane, when we talk about solutions. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but yeah. I do want to come back to that because I do think when you move to remote learning or online learning fully, it shows that teaching can't be a solo sport. It's got to be a Whoa. team sport. And this is where I would say, and the unions do need to reflect on the role they have and continue to play in preventing these types of changes that need to happen. Uh, you know, it is not uncommon, Michael, for unions to demand that teachers have incredibly high degrees of autonomy and freedom when it comes to what they teach and how they teach it. And, and these constraints that are advocated by unions in contracts and it often block the design for, you know, the, the changes in design that need to happen. And, and the lack of progress, um, it became really evident to parents as they got this front row seat to what it's like to be in class and just how bad that experience is, you know, as they sat looking over their kids' shoulders into these Zoom classes. And, you know, tell me about it. It's not just because it's on Zoom, Michael. I mean, this is this is what school looks like and feel like for a lot of kids every single day. And and I, I really do think teachers and unions have to examine the role they're playing and keeping things the way that they are. So I think that, yeah, and I think that sets us up for the, you know, the conversation, which I, I hate the phrase I'm about to utter, but, you know, the learning loss question. Uh, yeah. I, I prefer to say like the, like the not yet learned question <laughs> or something like that. Um, but, uh, you, you know, this question of, we've got a lot of students across the country that, uh, you know, need, need not just childcare, but also learning experiences. We need to create a better opportunity for teachers to be able to reach those children. As you just said, they've sort of been stood out on their own islands and so forth. And the question is, what can we do in this moment uh, as we think about how, what it means to safely reopen and the like? And I, I guess I'm frustrated here uh, by the role of the unions for a few reasons, because I, I, I think more than them being the block to reopening in person, which I'm sympathetic to a lot of their reasons right. on, on the safety piece. I'm less so on some of the overreach that they've done. I think that's overreach, but I, I am concerned uh, because I think that they've been blocks on the reimagining of what schooling looks like and when learning happens. And I'll, I'll give you three just, you know, bullet points on my mind. One Great. is uh, professional development. So, you know, in a lot of districts that, if you want to support teachers in being able to use new pedagogies or technologies or new practices or whatever else, you actually need to pay them for that professional development on top of what they're getting. Like for each hour that they are learning, it costs extra money to train them. Well, right now, school systems don't have a lot of extra dollars. These were not budgeted. These are really difficult times. It's I, I would argue it's been in the disadvantage of the teachers to not be able to get the professional development that they need to be effective in these new environments, whether they're remote or hybrid or in person with masks. Uh, and you're really 
tying the system by demanding pay for that. So that's that's one. Second, uh, a lot of places have been very strict on the hours that teachers can work. It's got to stay between, you know, sort of the eight to three window, if you will. Otherwise, yep, it's going to cost you more. We're going to have to get all these, you know, work through all these clauses to rethink hours and so forth. We need a lot of flexibility right now. Like families are in very different Mm -hmm. circumstances. Mom and dad might work, you know, two jobs during the day. They might be around at night. Maybe that's the time to have school. Maybe they work at night. They're around during the day and they can be with their kids. Like we need to have a lot more rethinking about when the learning occurs. And frankly, when you move to a full remote or online experience, what kids really need often is that text message at mm-hmm. 10 p.m. when they just have a question and they just need a little support, right? And and sort of that 24-7, which I don't expect any individual teacher to do, but as like a group of teachers figuring out how you staff that I think is important on top of which like teachers have their own families too and they might need more flexible hours to serve. But there's been huge blockages on that. And then the third thing I would say is that you acknowledged up front, like childcare is a major piece of these learning environments. It's really hard to figure out what opening safely in a school means because it's materially different from all these other environments. But then along comes all these micro schools and pod, you know, phenomenons and so forth. And the question I keep asking is, what would it look like if a district bunched a small group of students and gave them a teacher? Because we know that like that contact with an adult human is so important in these times and there was that in-person support or like they created various pod environments where you could rotate households or or thought creatively in a million different directions that I can't think of right Mm -hmm. and there have been huge blockages on thinking outside the box like that as well that I think not only could respond to the current moment and give the in-person support, give the child care, give the feeling of team, allow teachers to collaborate across classrooms and provide, you know, I'm responsible for instruction, you're responsible for tutoring, whatever it might be, all of that creativity that I think would be great for reinventing schools, period. But I think it could be doubly important right now. And that's where I've been most frustrated, not just on the reopening, but just the blockages to innovating in the current system. Yeah, Michael, what you're saying with resonates so much with me. And, you know, you and I both hate this this learning loss idea. We choke on it every time we say it because yes, we, we, do. we know that it's it it's basically a foregone conclusion for most people in the country and it doesn't have to be and you're pointing to how it doesn't have to be if we actually get creative and apply some of what we know it's possible here's the challenge and this makes me so sad because i am a teacher (laughs) Um, but teachers as a uh, as a profession and as professionals and their union as a professional organization just aren't credible on these ideas and this this idea of being creative and innovative um you know the the teaching profession today isn't grounded in science and best practice and and we can talk at length about why that is and you've touched on some of those ideas about just like the 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 sort of unwillingness around professional growth and development or the blockers on that. But I mean, you know, the one one simple example of this is just like the teaching of reading. I mean, at this point, Michael, it's completely clear 
what conditions and, and what works for teaching reading, period, full stop. And yet we still have a significant number of teachers in the US who are teaching reading every single day in a way that has proven to be ineffective at best and harmful at worst to kids. And, and so we're, it's just not, they're just not credible right now. And, and so this learning loss idea is real because the profession cannot credibly stand up and say, actually, we know how to ensure that kids all kids will learn. Uh, we have methods and approaches to make sure that all kids can learn. Our work is grounded in evidence and improvement science. And in order for that statement to be true, yes, our system needs redesign. And yeah. the professional organization representing teachers needs to focus on that aim, which is honestly not something they do right now. And so if I have a critique, that is my critique and frustration. Yeah. And I guess my, I, I like to leave us in hope and I'm yeah. hearing you say that I was like getting teary. Uh, mm -hmm. So, um, but I, I, I think it's this, which is that and I'm going to start with the depressing thing and then I'll shift to the hope, which is I think teachers got a lot of sympathy and love and realization of their value in the spring. And I think that's been somewhat squandered by the union's reaction and overplaying uh, some of the things that have said that we can't reopen or we can't do X, et cetera. And I think that's just like a tremendous shame and, and lost opportunity. But I also think it's contributing to the rising number of parents in the public that are in favor of different options that meet their kids where they are and are, are, are asking some of the big questions that we've been raising in this podcast. And unwittingly, I think it's going to hurt the unions in the long run, right? That they're playing the strong hand right now as they've had and that there will be a backlash against it. And, and I guess I hope that we all, not like pitting us against unions or unions against someone else or whatever else, but I hope we all take that as a way to step back and say, actually, there's some deeper truths and flaws in our system right now. How can we address them with the science of what you were just pointing yeah. to, Diane? And and I, I'm, I'm hopeful that this creates the space to have that deeper conversation, not the blame game. Yeah, I hope so too, Michael. And my hope truly comes down to the reality that um, unions, I remind myself of this every day, unions are not teachers and teachers are not unions. They're two very different things with very different purposes. And I know thousands of teachers and I feel very confident that they are representative of the millions of teachers we have in our country who are deeply passionate about serving their students and learning and getting better and all of the amazing things we're talking about. And they want the changes that we're talking about in the system and they crave them. And um, so that is what gives me hope is teachers. You know, there's a reason people love their teachers. Teachers are amazing. <laughs> um, and so we just need to harness that as a profession as an, and with the professional organizations to, to move in the right direction. It's a good way to end uh uh, this last podcast, but before we do, and as we go into the holidays and take a little break, Diane, What's uh, what, what, what's on your mind right now? What are you reading or watching or thinking about? Yeah, well, Michael, my energy is going to what I would call ho holiday communication. So usually every year I like send out a holiday, you know, postcard. Yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> As you are a recipient of them. What I'm discovering this year, Michael, is how much significance that is taking on this year, having not seen people um, and how invested I am in getting those communications and reading and savoring every word and the pictures and then feeling really compelled to like send them out to people as like a way of connecting. So I've been um, 
it's been a, a surprise to me that something that I do kind of on an annual basis is actually taking on so much more meaning this year. How about you? Well, my kids addressed uh, yours uh, over the weekend, and I saw it go out, so it should be there soon. But the, uh, you know, uh, uh, my wife and I wrote a book together, and it came out. That uh, it comes out tomorrow, actually, and so that's uh, or, oh my or for those listening, Tuesday, December eighth, I guess. Uh, and so we're excited about that. It's a children's book. It's called Goodnight Box, and uh, it's sort of uh, the 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 story that we wish we had had when our daughters were super little. It, it began as an inside joke between the two of us of you're reciting good night moon by heart right, right. And, uh, we started sort of fitting it for the fitness and crossfit worlds of which we're we're, we're so dedicated but the the reason we ultimately wrote it is like I wake up every day, as you know, trying to yeah. f- figure out how do we enable all individuals to build their passions and fulfill their human potential and health and wellness and role models to whom individuals can relate are, are critical factors in that journey. And they're too often neglected in our conversations around improving for all. So our hope is that this book will help parents and uh, children find their way to fitness and health. And, and we're going to give uh, 10% of the proceeds uh, to nonprofits that support at-risk youth through movement-based mentorship programs. So, so we're awesome. hoping that'll make a small difference this holiday season. Oh, thank you, Michael. I'm so excited. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And um, that is where we will leave it this week. Thanks to everyone for joining us on uh, this episode of Class Disrupted. Mm-hmm.